loved it. I send you a copy. Bam! Bitch went down. Welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking gay movies. We're talking spooky ghost movies. Yeah, we're talking about Japanese horror. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking about video game movies. Oh, yeah, right. (laughs) And we are also joined tonight by a very special guest. Or I guess today, because this usually... No, this comes out at night. It's okay. Tonight, (laughs) by a very special guest... We are joined by the lovely Jenny Nolf, uh, who listeners may know as the co-host of the No Excuses podcast. She is also notable for being the director of programming for the Austin Asian American Film Festival, so a particularly apt choice for tonight's episode. You may also see her bylines at the Austin Chronicle, writing wonderful movie reviews. Please welcome Jenny Nolf. Hi, thank you for having me on. Oh my god, I got a, a clap? <laughs> what? I don't, I don't clap for guests on my podcast now. I feel like I need to. <laughs> uh, I don't do it either. That's all Joe. Um, <laughs> but I also know you, so, but yes, yay! So yes, um, we are talking Fatal Frame. And yes, thank you for coming in to help us, um, especially since, you know, Asian cinema, while something I am familiar with, is not something I consider myself an expert in. And I know that you are very well read and versed in the, um, the art of Asian, well, really Asian anything, but specifically Asian cinema. <laughs> Yeah, Asian horror, very much so. Um, I'm actually even wearing my house shirt right now. I'm all themed, even though I didn't realize it. Trace, do you even know what she's talking about right now? No, I don't. (laughs) I guess it's house, but I pronounced it English. I don't know what that means. It's like the craziest Japanese film ever made. Yeah, you need to watch it, Trace. It's like bat bat shit. There's crazy. butt biting. 80 minutes too. Oh man. But it's 80 minutes of madness. But 80 minutes, man, that, that's like the way to my heart. So yeah, we are talking about Fatal Frame. And I realized we should clarify this is the 2014 Fatal Frame because I do believe there is another version. Yeah, but it's not an adaptation of the video game series. But yes, it's the 2014. Uh, it did not, to my knowledge, get a release in North America outside of um, a film festival screening at the... Fantasia International Film Festival in July of 2015. That's the one in Montreal. That's why you go to it. Because you get to see films that literally never get released in North America. Anyway, but I did mention this on last week's episode, but I do want to mention to listeners. So this movie is not available like to buy anywhere, but for some reason it's available to stream on YouTube. But um, this movie um, is an adaptation of the, well, it's an adaptation of the novelization of the very popular Japanese video game series Fatal Frame. There are five main games in the series, the first three of which were on PlayStation 2. The fourth was a Japan exclusive on the Wii. And then you also have the fifth game, which was made in Blackwater, which was released on the Wii U, also in North America. So it's kind of weird, you know, you got those first three games and the fifth game that were international releases, but that fourth game never released in the States. But there is a translation that people can like, go watch your videos online if they, you know, are inclined to watch gameplay footage. I've done that. I've totally done that. Do you play video games or do you just watch footage? So I don't actually have a console at my house, but mm-hmm. I play video games when I go to other people's houses. But I used to play StarCraft. Okay. And I would watch the gameplay online with my now ex all the time. And that's a PC game though, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. And then Joe... <laughs> no, I mean... So defeated. <laughs> that was, no, that, that wasn't like a, like a diss. I was, I've, I've never gotten into the... I, I was a Nintendo kid growing up and I was a PlayStation kid starting in 09 because the Resident Evil... Um, the fifth, Resident Evil 5 was a PS3, Xbox 360 exclusive. And so I was like, well, buy Wii and I bought a PlayStation. But it, it was a Blu-ray player. So it was like, you know, two birds, one stone. Yeah, man. Double dip action. 
And then, Joe, I don't believe you are a gamer at all. No, like back in the day, I was definitely a Sega, you know, Nintendo kind of guy. But it was like the low level games, not the ones that required, you know, multiple fingers. So, uh, yeah, um, great video game history. Love it. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited there's a gay video game movie to talk about because even though I never played these games, it's just, you know, it's fun. And just to clarify for people... If you don't play video games, you can still watch this movie because you literally don't need to know that at all. It's really informative, but this movie stands alone by itself. So we're, again, talking about Fatal Frame. We'll just kind of give down some basic facts. Now, Jenny and I don't... I tried to figure this out. So the the official title for this movie is Geki Joban Zero? Uh, yeah, that's basically the right pronunciation. Uh, it actually is Zero the movie. Yes. Nothing exciting. <laughs> well, because I was trying to do um, the translation of Geki Joban, and it was like intense early, and I was like, I don't like what. Okay. What? Oh, I looked it up actually in my Japanese dictionary, and it just is like the feature film. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, that's what we're talking about. But again, in America, in the states, it's always known as Fatal Frame, and it was released in September on September twenty sixth of twenty fourteen by. Kadokawa Pictures, which is considered one of the big four Japanese studios, and we've look- we're looking at a runtime of 105 minutes. I would argue that this movie's a little too long. I agree. Anything can be cut down to 80 minutes. <laughs> yes, yes. But with I... less butt biting. Yeah. <laughs> I-, I think a solid 90 would have done this. I mean, again, this is a movie where, like, when it, like, I thought it was going to end probably twice before it actually ended. Well, it's because there's 12 different endings. There are. Uh, so, yeah, make of that what you will, listeners. Although, if you're listening, hopefully you've watched it. Uh, and we're looking at a worldwide gross of $1.4 million. And this includes the South Korea box office. I'm assuming, though, that's primarily Japan. It didn't really get released. I mean, yeah, it didn't get released in the States, so. Yeah, it was $1 million in Japan. And then I think the rest is from South Korea. Yeah. I can't even talk about reception because there's no Rotten Tomato score, there's no um, audience score, there's no Metacritic score, there's no nothing. I'm assuming if you read Japanese outlets, there probably are reviews to be read. Um, I did look at a couple letterbox reviews. Now, um, so again, we're just going to skip all that bullshit, uh, move into just kind of (laughs) who's involved with this. Now, I didn't realize this when we picked it, but it is a female writer-director, same person. It's, uh, and I'm going to say, Madi Asato. She did direct the sixth entry in the Grudge franchise, Ju-On Black Ghost. Um, she directed a movie called Twilight Syndrome Deadly Theme Park, which is apparently another video game adaptation. And then she also directed a movie called Ring of Curse, which, and Ginny, so you sent this to me. Um, Gomen Nasai. Gomen Nasai. You don't have to say Sai, but it was very close. But Madonna has a song called I'm Sorry, and she says I'm sorry at the beginning of the song in a bunch of different languages. And one of them is Gomen Nasai. So that's how she says it. What a shocker. Madonna didn't get some kind of cultural appropriation, <laughs> correct? <laughs> Don't hate on me. Do not send me <laughs> tweets about that. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I mean, it's not like it's Avril Lavigne, you know, doing that like Hello Kitty shit. But uh, Avril Lavigne's like super big in Japan. Or Gwen Stefani. With her Harajuku girls. They got that wicked style. Oh my god. Exactly. <laughs> Things you can't get away with in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, Mani uh, directed this and wrote it. Now she adapted the screenplay from Eiji's Otsuka's novelization of the Fatal Frame video game series. And that's that. And honestly, there's there's a lot of characters in this movie, but and they all kind of have equal screen time, but really just are your basic, your main protagonist. Um, you have Ayami Nakajo playing the lead Aya. This is her debut film, but I guess she's known as being a supermodel in maybe, it, well, actually, maybe it's worldwide. Maybe it's like, I, I want to say I read somewhere she was like a Cosmo model, but I'm assuming she got her start in Japan. She's really pretty. 
She's very pretty. Um, and then, of course, you... Oh, I'm, I'm going to butcher this. Um, uh, listeners, I will butcher a lot of names tonight, so... Do you want me to say it? By all means. Aoi Morikawa. Okay, as Michi Kazato. Uh, she's also a model. Uh, it seems to be a trend with this. But um, the only, like, major pull I could find from her is she's in the world of Kanako, which I've never seen, but I own the Blu-ray and my husband loves it. It was a Draft House Films release. I'm pretty sure it was Draft House yeah. Films. It, it was. One of their last ones. No, it was, because he um, he got it from the vending machine of Blu-rays that's in the lobby. So, okay, that's kind of... I'm going to stop at the call sheet there. So, Joe, what is Fatal Frame about? Okay, so this is a complicated rundown. Honestly, I probably could have just read the Wikipedia entry. It might be about the same length. So bear okay. with me. If at any point you're like, no, we don't need to know this, just, uh, you know, hustle me along. Okay. At the Seijitsu Academy, Aya has locked herself in her room for 10 days. Everyone has loved her since they heard her sing a song based on Ophelia's part from Hamlet, including Kasume who discovers a picture of Aya and kisses it at midnight. This activates a curse that only affects girls who have had their hearts broken. Afterwards, Kasume is dazed and sleepy, even as they go out on a field trip for Miss Asayu's class, who reveals that she has a mentally handicapped brother, Takashi. Slowly thereafter, while out in the woods with her photographer friend Mishi, Kasumi disappears. Michi later discovers the picture of Aya in the attic and is haunted by an ethereal vision of her, and she whispers to Michi, free me from the curse. Friends Risa and Itsaka also enact the charm, along with several other girls, when the picture of Aya is distributed by text around the school, and eventually everyone who kissed the picture disappears and their bodies turn up drowned by the canal, including Kasumi. Michi cries for her dead friend and possible crush, and the real Aya arrives just in time to save Michi from succumbing to the photo. Aya reveals that she locked herself away because she saw a haunting image of herself floating under the water. Michi and Aya are determined to solve the mystery of the curse, reaching out to former student Kazumi. We're just going to call her Mary, because that's also how she's referred yes, to. Yes, Miss Mary. Yeah, because she dresses like little fucking Bo Peep. <laughs> very odd. <laughs> So, they reach out to former student Mary, who reveals the legend of two young lesbians who committed suicide in the lake when their love was condemned by the public. After Michi confesses she likes girls, she and Aya are attacked by girls who fear Aya will kill them. Michi saves Aya by kissing her to prove that she is only human. Michi elects to enact the curse so that they can discover where the girls wander off to. She and Aya link themselves by red yarn and are led into the woods to the score from Suspiria. After a mild <laughs> earthquake, they are separated and Miss Asu's brother Takashi... I call her Mayumi and Takashi. Mayumi and Takashi. Yeah. And Mayumi and... Uh, her brother, Takashi, hits Aya in the face with a shovel before shoving her into the deserted water reserve. Asuyu, nope, already forgot it, uh, <laughs> nearly drowns Michi in the river, but stops when Takashi confesses and they flee, eventually drowning in the woods. Okay, good, I don't have to say her name again. <laughs> Michi saves Aya, who discovers that the haunted spirit luring girls to the reserve is actually her twin sister, Maya, who died when they were first adopted by the Academy. In multiple revelation endings, it is revealed that the headmistress was one of the lesbians in Mary's photo who let her lover commit suicide but chickened out and didn't die. She later sacrificed Maya so that her lover would have a companion, and it is inferred—oh, damn it, I do have to say it again—it is inferred that Miss Asu— What is it? It is inferred that Ayumi assumed her brother (laughs) had killed Maya, and she was killing the other girls to protect him. 
At the end of the film, the remaining girls graduate and Michi and Aya go their separate ways. They nearly kiss, but Michi pulls back at the last moment because they are now normal women and no longer girls. Listeners, if you have not watched this movie, that probably made no fucking sense. (laughs) Made no sense to me and I fucking wrote it. (laughs) No, I know. But it is the plot. I took the most amount of notes in this movie compared to any movie that we've watched before. Um, Not only for the video game stuff, but also because I was like, okay, this is going to sound terrible. I had trouble telling some of these girls apart. Racist. (laughs) So it's, I mean, it doesn't help that they are literally all wearing schoolgirl outfits or nightgowns the entire movie. So Michi is like the only one you can easily discern because she has short hair. No, but I made I made a character breakdown on my notes, and I was like, this person did this, and this person did this, and this person did this. So, before we get into, like, just kind of diving into things here, because, again, there's a lot to talk about, I just wanted to kind of talk about the video game franchise before we actually really get into what the movie is. So, as Jenny mentioned, you know, it's called Zero the Movie in Japan. So, the, the games are the same way. The games were just called Zero in Japan and Project Zero in Europe. Now, this title is inspired by the nature of the game's enemies, which are malevolent ghosts or spirits. As beings of nothingness, along with it representing the state of someone being at their utmost um, something, I don't know, <laughs> this is the Wikipedia, um, their utmost nothingness uh, during a decisive moment. Also, the Japanese word for zero and ghost apparently sound the same. Uh, I think it's rei. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. But yeah, so the video game franchise was created by Makoto Shibata, uh, and it was inspired by his own experiences with supernatural events. Uh, he partnered with Keisuke Kikuchi, who was in charge of uh, general oversight. Uh, they both watched for inspiration for the games, um, high and low budget Japanese horror films, as well as war films. I went through every single plot, beat by beat. Well, I'm sorry, kind of. The general plot for each game. They're really convoluted, they're really intense. Basically, though, uh, something to make a note of is, you know, you can watch gameplay videos and you can watch speedruns of these games, but a lot of the plot is garnered from notes that you pick up it's very much like resident evil but the plot points that you pick up is very is a lot more dense you know resident evil it's just kind of like this happened and like it was cool but it's like kind of super, superfluous to the story it's like extra backstory whereas with fatal frame to really get the story of this uh you really need to pick up all the notes in the story and also each game tends to have three or four different endings depending on either what difficulty level you beat the game on or um, kind of what you do during the game. So the main concept of the games is, uh, and the movie is kind of similar in the sense, uh, each entry focuses on one location beset by hostile supernatural events. The playable character is always a female, and it's involved in the present investigation using the Camera Obscura, which is a magic camera. Now, that is the character's only weapon in the game, and it can be used to damage the ghosts. The way to damage them is by taking pictures of them, and they fade in, they fade out, and like, you know, whatever. If you hit a ghost in its weak spot, that's considered the fatal frame, hence the name of the game. You'll notice, though, that in this movie, that doesn't mean shit. Um, so it kind of probably would have made more sense to just call it zero here, but obviously they need that brand recognition. So yeah, that hits a ghost weak spot. A ghost capture energy is converted into points, which can then be used to buy items and upgrade the camera obscura and obtain more powerful items. Most of the games are standalone. There is maybe one or two characters that recur throughout the franchise, but for the most part, you could pick up one of these games, play it, and like, it wouldn't make a difference if you play one of the other games or not. But they do have recurring themes. Typically, um, a recurring concept is a pseudo-physical location bridging the physical and spiritual worlds. In the first game, you know, you have a strangling ritual in which a a shrine maiden is torn apart using ropes attached to her limbs and neck. Those ropes um, were used to seal a hell gate to keep down something called the malice. And in that, the basic plot of that game is, you know, 
the maiden doesn't go through with the ritual because she fell in love and her lover was murdered and it caused the malice to leak out, which then, you know, came out and killed everyone in the mansion and made them evil ghosts. Fatal Frame 2, uh, there was a crimson sacrifice where twins are tied together with a red rope, which is in this movie, but has nothing to do with the sacrifice. <laughs> and basically the elder twin must strangle the younger twin in order to set in order to satisfy the hellish abyss, a deep hole that collects souls of the dead. Um, after the sacrifice, the soul of the dead twin stays to guard the village as a crimson butterfly. But, of course, in that game, one twin escaped, the other twin didn't, so the townsfolk, or the village people, killed this twin to uh, to satisfy the hellish abyss. It didn't, causing the repentance, which, you know, shrouded the town in darkness. And that kind of goes with each game. You know, there's a ritual, it fails, something happens, it causes evil ghosts. Or YMCA, the theme song. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and again, there's three more games. I won't go through the details, but that's just kind of the basic gist. So the novelization takes that concept of, you know, a failed ritual and things going on and morphs it into its own thing. So you can watch this movie. And even though there are minor Easter eggs, which I mean, honestly, the biggest one, there is a camera that plays a part. There's an evil photo or a cursed photo. And then there's the wet red rope. Um, but really, it's more thematically of an, an adaptation of these games, and it is like a straightforward like plot adaptation. Or you could watch The Grudge. <laughs> it is similar. Well, I mean, all of these like Japanese horror movies are kind of the same because they all are pulling from the same folklore. Also, uh, this woman did work under two very like prolific Japanese horror auteurs. One of them being Kurosawa, who did like Pulse and Cure, and then the guy who wrote The Ring script. Takahashi. Yeah, she seems to naturally gravitate towards this particular kind of material, like stuff with women-driven spectral hauntings, curses, grudges, things that have to be undone, which again, as you suggested, I think is fairly common in at least the kind of Japanese horror that makes it across the pond. So there's obviously a lot of a lot of different sections of this film we can tackle. Is there a particular plot point you'll want to start with first? Do you want to start with the curse itself? Do you want to start with the lesbianism? Like, where do, where do y'all want to go with this first? Because there's a lot to unpack. Lady's choice. Oh, okay. Um, well, I feel like the curse itself is a little bit more lighter than the lesbianism of the movie. So we could start with the curse. Yeah, for sure. So w- the way I gather it is, you know, um, the... So you've got your two lesbians. One... And the rich, because there's not really an outright, uh, outright ritual like there is in the games. Because in the games, it's like, okay, you have like, you know, a group of people, they're doing a ritual to appease some kind of hellish gate or hellish force or a hole of some sort. <laughs> Appeasing the hole. So it's not a ritual per se, but basically, yes, you've got a lesbian. There are two lesbians in like, I want to say like the early 1900s, maybe. Because, I, because I, oh, that's one thing too. All the games are set in the 80s. And this movie doesn't outright say when it's set, but I would assume maybe it's also the 80s. It's really it's hard to tell. I felt like it wasn't really like of any certain time. No, me neither. Because you said there were, wait, because there are cell phones in the movie, right? There is at least a rudimentary cell phone. Yeah, so maybe like 2000s? Okay, so maybe not. <laughs> um, then maybe I'm wrong. So yeah, they just ignored that. There's um, a flashback, though, to the... Jenny, help me out here. Is it the Meiji Dynasty or the Meiji Dynasty? Meiji. Okay. But I, I, I saw that note, too, and I Googled it, and it was, like, from, like, the late 1800s to the very early 1900s. So I was mm-hmm. like... Mm, so now we'll never know. <laughs> well, <laughs> I took it to be 
so that long extended conversation between Maya and Aya when she's like treading water in the water reserve near the Ooh, end. Yes. The suggestion seems to be that there's a historical legacy of women who have had their sexuality repressed committing suicide in the lake and the lake eventually transformed into the water reserve and it has like withheld all of these you know sad memories of women and that's what kept maya sort of animated or alive throughout her Mm -hmm. extended submersion well okay so that's the thing though there's kind of like two well there's one curse so there's, you know, okay, the, the, the headmistress, you know, didn't kill herself with her lesbian lover. And so... That bitch. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that they she's had a like, suicide pact? Like, you're all lined up and ready to go, and then you just watch the other one fall to her death, and you're like, mm, gosh, And just no. runs away. No. I'm just thinking no right now. I, okay, so I have... She's like the Theon of this movie. She's such a coward. Yes, definitely. I have a lot of issues, though, too, just the general concept of using drowning to kill yourself, because I just don't really understand... I guess you're just breathing in the water. I mean, again, I just feel like it'd be hard. I feel like your body would, like, be fight or flight, and, like, you, your body, like, you would immediately, like, get out, but maybe not. It is, whatever. but it's very much, like, remember that we've got that Ophelia Hamlet thing running throughout this entire movie. Yeah, so I was going to bring yeah. that up, too, you know? I mean, and there is a shot of the girl floating in the water, which is extremely, I mean, extremely reminiscent of that painting of Ophelia, again, dying in the water, which Ophelia is a very controversial character in literature in general, um uh, and listeners again it's um yeah ophelia is like the woman who maybe committed suicide maybe drowned by accident in shakespeare's hamlet so yeah so you got your lesbian doesn't go through the with the suicide thing i guess suicide ritual you could say uh suicide pact and so her lover's ghost stays with her throughout her life and she doesn't torment her though because the headmistress says she she doesn't torment me i suffer because She's just there. She's not, like, maliciously doing anything. She's just there. Mm-hmm. And then she gets these two twin girls, and she's like, oh, I'm not going to tell anyone you're twins. I'm going to kill one of you to be a companion to my dead lesbian lover. Which she's a child. Mm-hmm. Hello. Yes. But I guess <laughs> Lots of issues here. here. Yes. Um, and so one of the twins drowns, and the other one tries to save her. But then, of course, you have the whole soap opera plot of, like, oh, it was so traumatic that she forgot all of yeah. this. Yeah, like PTSD stuff. She forgot her twin of like seven years. Yeah. Seven or eight years <laughs> yes. of her life. Exactly. Uh, who had a name that was so similar to her own. Uh, right? Maya and Aya. I was like, girl. But let's be honest. Who hasn't killed an identical twin sibling and then completely forgotten about it for years at a time? Like, we've all been there, folks. Come well, it was, it was so <laughs> funny, though, because when uh, Maya volunteered to, you know, be the one to die... Um, which again, they just she just accepts her fate like nothing like nothing's going on. But she says, you know, I'm the elder, and um, in the video in the second video game, there's you know the whole thing with like the twin one twin has to kill the other and blah blah blah. But it's like there's like a twist where it's like, oh, the elder isn't the one that's born first. The elder is actually the one that's born second because they're stronger and they let the quote unquote weaker one get like go out before them. So the elder means stronger in that case, but they don't really play with that in this movie, which I was like, "Eh, okay. But this is why Aya manages to survive and Maya does not. Yes. Because Maya's like, I'm the older, I guess I should go. And then... Plus she can tread water like a boss. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So, yeah. So Maya drowns and Aya just leaves with the headmistress. (laughs) Totally unscathed. Yes. And uh, so my one question, or I have a couple questions, but my one big question, though, was so why did Maya wait until Aya was older, like 
you know, however many years later, to start reaching out to her and start having this cursed picture. Because she's of age to have crushes on women now. Uh, she's on the cusp of graduating. She's on the verge of having sexual thoughts. Well, because she says she's always grown up with her, but she, d- again, she waited until this particular moment to, like, reach out. So yeah, she makes this, there's the photo that Mayumi's son, Susumo, takes of her. Right? Like, that's the photo. Can we call her Mary just to keep it sort of straight for everybody? I'm sorry. Yes. Mary's son, Susumo, who literally his only purpose in this plot is to take pictures. Carry out a camera. Yeah. <laughs> Which, again, it's it totally an Easter egg for game players. It's the camera obscura, even though it doesn't actually do damage to ghosts. But you can see ghosts through the camera. Mm-hmm. And it's also a warning that you should keep an eye out for your kids, because if not, they're going to go around town taking pictures of dead ladies. <laughs> It's something. Not ladies. Sorry. Teenage women. <laughs> right. Yes. Girls, I guess. It's important to make that distinction between girls and women in this movie. Yeah. So Maya dies. There's a photo. And basically, if you kiss it, you have the curse and you're immediately drawn to the reservoir where Maya's corpse is. But the whole the whole point of it to what I believe is that she's waiting for Aya to kiss the picture so she can make her way to the corpse, and they can be reunited. It makes sense, but it's not explicit. It's not very clear, but that's kind of how the curse is lifted, is when I remember. Mm-hmm. So am I totally crazy? Nope, that's what I got to. You're not. They're, they're reunited, though, too. And oh, there's that really gross image, though, of like when they're hugging and like her scalp peels off. Mm, oh, it's so delicious. very ring. <laughs> yes, it is. It's it, holding a it's desiccated like... body in a body of water. Yeah. Which actually is very common in Japanese horror films because the body of water kind of symbolizes like the, I guess, like path between death and life. Yes. Which is why you get a lot of dead wet girls. Yes, Yes, for (laughs) sure. Um, So, yeah, I mean, like there are, there, there does seem to be like a loose rule set with this curse. I mean, I just love it because that alone, when you think about it, you're like, okay, yeah, there's some poetry to it there's some really memorable imagery of like girls sort of wandering around days through the woods or like that scene where they're walking like uh michi and aya and they're they're attached by the red string like it's really gorgeous you know like that all works and then let's also put in like a brother sister murder cover-up yeah, that because, was like, well, I know. Yes. That, <laughs> so so that, that was the thing. Okay, that's, yeah. So all these girls are drawn to the reservoir, but because Mayumi thinks that her brother Takashi killed the, the twin, Maya, yeah. when they were younger. So she basically, anytime anyone goes near this reservoir, kills them. Mm-hmm. She drowns them in the canal and then just like shoots the body downstream. <laughs> yes. And so then it's like there's... That so again, like, but I, I I did like the misdirect because again, like the first half of this movie is very much oh it's a mali- malicious ghost and yeah. then all the girls die. Like I I want to say it's like the halfway point where it's revealed that Aya is not a ghost and she's alive and she's actually just been hiding in her room this whole time. Mm-hmm. It's actually about halfway through because well the idea in the beginning was that her soul had left her body and her body's chilling in her room locked in there and her soul is like hanging out around downtown but actually it's her sister's soul that just has aged right yes yeah because they age together i did love that reveal though because i totally was like oh man how long until they break down the door and just find like a gross, <laughs> like a rotted, rotted cop <laughs> yeah, <of> yeah. <laughs> for sure <laughs> 
Well, I mean, let's say like the first half of this movie, I was very much like, what? Because even the curse itself in the beginning when you're watching it, I was like, what? Like, they see the ghost. They got to repeat that damn fucking line every time. And I also think there was maybe a translation issue because the phrasing of it's like the curse that affects only girls. They use the exact same phrase every time and it never changes depending on what tense they're using. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is what happens when we're dealing with subtitles sometimes well and it's youtube you know so it might just be some kind of like random person yeah Um, like donkey kong jr 86 is like thanks for the subtitles we appreciate it i thought they were pretty good translations for the most part and like the thing with tenses in japanese too is that they're a little bit more complex they're complex but also a little bit more simple so like they could be saying the same thing over and over again but i don't know i i I actually didn't really wasn't paying attention to the actual wording of that stuff but i I have the translations in general for like most stuff that in america gets translated incorrectly was pretty accurate well it's interesting too because part of what makes the film interesting is the interchangeability of the girls like when i first watched this i thought kasumi was the main character oh i did too oh yeah and then they just you know she like fucks off in the middle of the woods and you're (laughs) like so wait who are we following (laughs) well listen michi's the narrator but i didn't real again i thought the narrator was kasumi that's what i thought too yeah that was really hard to tell Mainly because of the way the film was edited with sound and, and stuff. I was like, okay, there are these two girls, but which one are we following? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like, hi, I'm Michi. I'm going to narrate this. Here's my friend that I'm in love with. Oh, she's gone. By well, the way, I'm still here. <laughs> and, a, well, and apparently all these girls are lesbians, though, because they say, you know, all the second Aya came to the school, everyone fell in love with her. Well, I Okay, so I think this is a turn of phrase. I think it's Mm -hmm. like all the girls loved her, like in a teen film where it's like the hot girl walks down the hallway in slow motion and everybody's like, oh, wow, her. Yeah, because they actually don't say I I, that was like one of the parts where in the the translation was actually very funky where they don't she doesn't say I love you. But that often is translated very strange Mm -hmm. from Japanese to English because you actually never say you love somebody. Gotcha. Um, That's a very, very intimate thing. And usually people say really like in replace of love because to say like i love you is like insanely intimate oh, wow. gotcha. okay that's like bedroom talk <laughs> <laughs> that's like in the house talk you're gonna have to do more than just sing the parts from hamlet to get me to say that to you and, I'm sorry, i did want to point out it was the curse that only girls will be affected that's the exact like subtitle that we get to read the entire time. So it's mm-hmm. like it's the curse that only girls will be affected. So it, it, that's the can- thing that repeats the whole time. Again, translation issue, whatever. Well, the other fun thing is that like this movie is comprised literally only of girls. There is one man, and he is mentally handicapped and incapacitated in some. And one would argue superfluous <laughs> to the plot. Oh, yeah. Um, that yeah. <laughs> I, I, but granted, though, with, without Takashi and Mayumi, you don't have that beautiful image of all the dead girls in the river. Oh, yeah. That was something. There's a lot of really just hauntingly beautiful shots in this movie. Yeah, she's definitely patient with her filming. May I ask what y'all's favorite image was in the film? If you have one. Ladies first. Probably the one in the reservoir. Like the bodies all gathered up? Yeah, the body like floating, kind of almost fetus-like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed that one. I enjoyed the image of who we think is ghostly Aya walking across the water towards uh, Richie. 
Mm-hmm. And she's like submerged up to her chest, but Aya's walking literally on the surface. Um, I think it's Risa, but... Damn it. <laughs> I think it is Risa, because she's the one that's found again, Yes, right? yes. Yeah. So I also did not understand how she survived, and nobody else did. I didn't really understand that either. She just is somehow, like... So she got turned she, around. Well, oh, that's the thing. The, the, the scene with the shaman, <laughs> the scene with the shaman, too, was very, like, okay, why are we doing this? But, no, I agree with both of you, and I also would agree that any reveal of the ghost, there's a shot where the girls are talking in the bedroom, and then all of a sudden, like, it's like Maya's ghost appears behind them against the wall. Anything but the ghost, that was very well done. But my favorite image is actually the scene when, or the shot, when they're all in the choir room at the church, (gasps) I guess. Is it when they all pass out? Yes! Oh, yeah! So good. Slow motion, And she's she's dropping down, like, and, like, arms extended like she's fucking Jesus Christ. Right after the headmistress says, like, don't worry, Christ will protect us. And then it's like, oh, who, me? Here I come from the ceiling! Well, and and that's also (laughs) when the Suspiria, like, score is going, like, hardcore. It's just, like, really going. Okay, can we, can we talk about that? Because oh my god, it is such a rip off of the Suspirious. <laughs> but but it, it bothered me the entire time. <laughs> I was just like, it's almost the Suspirious score, but like they changed two notes. Yeah. Like, well, how did Goblin not sue the ass off of this movie? Because he probably doesn't know it exists. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and we're That's gonna get him released to North America. <laughs> But I mean, it is. I mean, because it, it's mixed. It's it's half Suspiria score and it's half like. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> That's, That's great. Right, we, <laughs> we've talked about that. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know how to describe it, so I did like woman's howling. I, that that's I, that's the only way I knew how to describe that. If this podcast had subtitles, it would be woman howling. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it works. I mean, again, whenever that Suspiria score came up, like I was like, "Ooh, yeah, I'm into this. Yeah, give me that ghost shit." I especially liked it when they're walking through the woods with the red string to the not Suspiria soundtrack, and I was like. This is, like, nothing in the movie scared me, Mm-mm. but I was like, this is some good shit. Like, I'm enjoying this. I think it's because, though, and this is where I think maybe game players might have an issue. There isn't a malignant or malicious ghost in this movie. Mm-mm. There is not a, none of the ghosts are trying to hurt or kill anyone. Which feels very rare for, like, J-horror. Yeah, instead they pull the rug and they're like, the ghost hasn't been killing anyone and it's actually this mentally handicapped guy. Oh, wait, it wasn't. Well, do, do y'all like that? Do y'all like that? Do you like that reveal? Do you like the fact that there is this extra third plot going on? Because I, I do think that, again, like the, these aforementioned, you know, reveals of the ghost in the background, like, doing stuff and, like, are creepy, but yeah, they're never scary. And I think when you're adapting what has been frequently referred to as one of the scariest video game franchises of all time, there are expectations in play there that are not met by this movie. I agree. I was like really hoping for something because I read a lot before where everyone's like, oh, it's so like peaceful and like calm and that kind of makes it eerie and creepy. Mm -hmm. But having like watched so many J-horror movies and knowing like where eerie and creepy can go if you're like very patient, which is what the original ring does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As well as another favorite of mine, which is called The Inerasable, which never got distributed in America either. But yeah, like that's what it that's what J-horror is good at is patience and not jump scares. I don't know. I just felt like it was too patient (laughs) but also they didn't want it to be scary well and on that level i can kind of respect the film for what it is and i think taken on its own Mm -hmm. terms i again exceedingly long run like runtime aside i do think that it is a solid film and i i 
I don't want to say yet that it's the best video game movie ever made, but I mean, there's not a lot of competition there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think if you watch this and you didn't know anything about the video game, you would probably think, oh, this is almost more of a tragic love story as opposed to like it just happens to use ghosts to advance the love story angle. Whereas if you were a hardcore gamer and you were like, yeah, I can't believe they're going to make a fucking Fatal Frame adaptation, you'd be like, what is this shit? Like, where are my ghosts at? (laughs) Well, but honestly, though, how could you make the, again, when the game is you walking around in first person, taking photos of ghosts to harm them, how can you adapt that into a film? Trace. (laughs) If you're talking about the power of cinema, like, honestly, you reading the description of the games, I was like, okay, so it's Resident Evil, the first one, meets Silent Hill. Like, that's what I'm envisioning the game is. I mean, it's Shudder, right? Well, okay, wait, Joe. Resident Evil, you're using guns to kill things. Silent Hill, well, I've never played it, but I think you're using guns too, right? Oh my God, you've <laughs> never played Silent Hill? <laughs> no, but... That surprises well, no, me. It super surprises I, me. I, I wasn't a PlayStation. Again, I had Nintendos and GameCube uh... and stuff. Up until oh, 2009. Right. Now, granted, they did release the Silent Hill HD collection, which was um, Silent Hill 2 and 3 on the PS3, but I heard they were bad, so I was like, oh, I don't want to play that. But it's nothing like this, where, again, you're literally walking around a haunted place picking up notes using a camera to damage ghosts. I mean, you have to write a lot of plot around that. You do. Well, and again, there is a lot of plot around that in the games. So I'm assuming a good third of these games is reading notes but i'm imagining like there's a way where you could do it as okay we've got this giant mansion it's haunted you have to you know stumble around like a bit of a mystery kind of like all right we're solving we're looking for clues we're unlocking hidden things and then you've got to pick up still have the lesbian stuff Yeah. yeah so here's the thing none of the descriptions of the games mentioned queer content so that is obviously something that she she was like you know what i feel really strongly about well again not her it's in the novelization ah that's right well so hey so here so walk us through that so i i didn't find a plot summary of the book but i found a letterbox review um from someone named skankle thank you skankle So I I abbreviated her review, and basically it goes like this. It goes, "Um, the film is actually based on a novel that was based on the series. The novel was atrocious. Misogyny (sighs) abounded throughout every other sentence. A girl collapses randomly with her friends because she got her period. The only middle-aged woman in the plot has most of her dialogue framed by descriptors of her crow's feet, wrinkles, and inappropriate style of dress. Lesbianism is posited as something that young girls grow up and leave behind, which we can discuss about this movie. Mm -hmm. The young girl protagonists of the plot are too incompetent to solve the mysteries themselves. Instead, a group of random people making a cameo from another piece of the author's work intrude in the latter chapters and solve (laughs) the entire mystery for them. Some of these missteps mirror those of the series itself, such as the general misogyny and fetishistic attitudes of young girls and lesbians, albeit taken to another level of obnoxiousness and with very few other redeeming features. The links to the games otherwise were limited to the presence of a curse, a failed ritual, and some minor ghostly photography. The novel even abandoned the traditional Japanese settings of the series, like a mansion or a village, for a Catholic girls' school. Expectations for the film were abysmally low, knowing it was based on this mess. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. So, this person clearly knows their shit. 
Um, but then she says, uh, Maria Sato did some serious editing to the plot. No more menstrual fainting. The middle-aged woman wasn't sneered at as an object of ridicule. And the cameo squad were reduced to a very minor role. Oh, and the outsiders are the shaman and the girl who pick up. Yes, I bet you're right. So due to an unfortunate ending, homophobic undercurrents remain in the plot, but it is still reduced compared to the novel. So that's it. I mean, every movie is reduced compared to a novel. <laughs> well, and uh, granted, so... We'll dive into the queerness here. You know, again, based being what this movie is based on, I am surprised that it's such a heavy queer plot in this movie. But... That ending is weird. It is weird. Yeah. I think the line that gets me is when she... Because, again, she Michi goes to kiss Aya. And Aya doesn't reciprocate. And then Michi has a line where she's like, oh, but we're not young girls. We're not girls anymore. We're, we're, we're young adults or we're women or something. So are we then led to believe that Michi is no longer attracted to women? That being attracted to another woman is something of a girlish? Yes. And maybe the curse itself is lesbianism. I didn't say that about the curse, but I kind of just felt like it was like, oh, once you grow up, you grow out of this quote unquote phase. <laughs> yeah. Because young girls are always going to be attracted to young girls in this like Catholic setting or something like that. Especially like, and there's obviously the whole repression of church and whatnot and have you yeah. kind of mulling around in the background. But I don't that that last line really did bother me. <laughs> yeah. It's hard not to take it personally. I was like, oh. <laughs> How do you think this film feels about homosexuality or queerness or whatever whatever you want to call it? Well, it's interesting, Jenny, what you just said, because so I tried to do a little bit of research on how queer culture is like how it's faring in Japan, because my only experience has been watching an episode of that Ellen Page show Gaycation, which is like, <laughs> mm interesting but it's like it's taken a few you know very like light jabs at like we kind of went we went to a gay bar we talked to somebody and they said this kind of deal so i was trying to get a better sense of like what is the history how has the practice changed or come to be accepted because this film is not old so i was like is mm -hmm. it a reflection of how people feel currently and something interesting that i found and of course i can't find the specific quote but as far as i can tell there was something called a gay boom in the 1990s and that's when mass media and the lesbian and gay community started to like show up a lot more or rather the lesbian and gay community started to show up a lot more in pop culture and people started to like come out and talk about it more publicly but it was still mostly frowned upon there's a very odd history where like even if you look at the wikipedia history of like homosexuality in japan 95 percent of it is all about men and there's like virtually no reference to lesbianism except to say that it's kind of treated a little bit more, it's almost less accepted than being gay because women are supposed to be proper and the idea is like being a lesbian is not very ladylike in Japan. And there, there is a specific mention to like the difficulty of establishing like lesbian groups and clubs and stuff because women would either not want to self-identify or they would say, oh, well, it's something I don't want to be publicly associated with because when I grow up, I'm just going to like grow out of this. So it is very much treated like lesbianism is a phase that proper ladies do not 
like abide by. I mean, at, not to like be down on Japan, but they are very still traditional mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Even though I, I have friends that even when you mention being gay, they kind of get uncomfortable and kind of change the subject really quickly. Last year, so actually this movie isn't considered quote-unquote mass-produced Hollywood, LGBT, or like Japan, Holly, Japan's version right. of Hollywood, if you will, film. Uh, last year, their first film came out, and it was called Close Knit. And uh, we it showed it in Austin once, and I'm pretty sure it showed it at a few festivals, probably in Canada as well. But like this film was not considered that kind of mass-produced hmm. LGBT film. So this would have been made for a big audience. Well, I, it was made for a big audience, though. So I wonder if it was like, the, it, it, there's like that thing at the end, slash that like that line, and kind of digging into what you were saying. Like, it's, because then you have, well, I kept thinking about it too, because then you have like the character, uh, oh, I cannot remember her name right now. But the woman who did not die in the suicide pact, that is now like a nun. Yeah, the headmistress at this, like, Catholic school. Yeah, like, clearly then she's, like, quote, unquote, married to God. And she's not interested in anyone mm-hmm. sexually anymore. It's like her penance. Uh, dude, yeah. So I almost... The projection of what lesbians will grow up to be is, like, you will either grow out of it, you will be celibate, or you will die before then. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know. I felt like the film was kind of... It, it was pushing a boundary, but then it decided to backtrack very quickly. Yeah, it felt like it was okay with it, um, almost in the way that a 50s melodrama would be like, yeah, women can be free to run a business and they can go out and sleep with men so long as in the final frame they come back and they get punished by like having their kids taken away or they die or like they go to jail. Yeah, and the fact that like last year was the first mainstream film that ha- that like directly dealt with a gay subject. That's surprising. It says a lot. And actually there are... Only 61 LGBT-related films in Japan listed on the wiki page. But this is one of them, right? It is one of them. It is listed as one of them, but, I mean, it's not considered mass, Mm -hmm. like, by a lot of people as, like, the first mainstream one, which is weird in that way. Yeah. Trace, how did you read it? So, on my first view, honestly, I was like... Okay, well, because I never on it, I didn't view Aya as a lesbian. Amichi, I did. Oh, yeah, especially with the haircut. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, if you weren't going to, like, think she was a lesbian first, then she gets the haircut. I mean, is that a lesbian haircut? Is that not just... No, okay, like so haircut? here's the thing. The really terrible haircut. Yeah, like, Mi- Michi looks like a little boy. Yeah. Like, she looks like a 12-year-old boy. But they, they have that line where Aya says, you know, I don't know what it's like to love another girl. And Michi says, oh, I, that's interesting. I don't know what it's like to love another boy. Yeah. Like, that to me was her being like, hey, I like you. And I want right. to like, touch parts of my body to yours. Well, and, and then they, they do kiss after the girls try to kill Aya. But it's mm-hmm. it's definitely Michi kissing Aya, and you know she's like, "Well, you just saved my life, so I'll just sit here as you your lips touch mine." And the end of the movie is, you know, Aya like, you know, I'm not into girls, I'm not into you. But with with Michi's line saying, you know, oh, like we're no longer young girls anymore, I maybe take that as Aya's again. I'm making things up on the fly, but I view it as Michi like rationalizing it like she's very much still a lesbian and i don't think she's rejecting her lesbianism but i think it's very much like i just got rejected so <laughs> so i'm gonna like walk back on this I yeah mean, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm gonna walk back yeah. i'm gonna come back yeah 
and then we'll have well, chat. and that, that's but, but, but that's that's a, that's a teenage that's a teenage thing though. I mean, do y- did y'all have a love when you were eighteen years old, like le- in your last year of high school? Duh, Joe. I mean, are we talking like someone that I admitted it to? No. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Well, so no. So I, I, I dated this guy. I started dating this guy in April, my senior year of high school. And we knew that we were going to different colleges. I was going to go to, you know, a place in Texas. He was going to go to a place in, I think, Kansas. Wow. You don't even remember your 18-year-old No, I remember him. I mean, no, I remember him. I remember him. He's a very popular drag queen in New York now named Rosé. Oh, my God. So, yeah, listeners, um, by all means, go look for Rosé in New York. And he has, like, a thousand <laughs> followers. Uh, thousands of followers. It's great. Um, but anyway. No, but I... So- he came out better, I guess. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. No, he, he de- he's definitely more popular than I am. But I mean, no, like, he, he does really good Moira Rose drag. It's great. Oh, fun. Yeah, it's super fun. Uh, but no, but I remember being an 18-year-old child. Because, again, like, I know 18's an adult, but, like, you know, it's their children. Yeah, like, you're dumb. Yeah. Um, but I, I remember <laughs> thinking, out the world. thinking, like, this was the love of my life. I'm going to be with this person forever. Even though, like, oh, we're going to different colleges, we'll find each other again later. It's going to happen. Thanks, romantic comedies. Mm. No, but, like, I mean, like, and I totally get that. I would make any excuse that I could to, like, I- even if it was, oh, like, we're not going to be together. Like, he- he's being the rational one saying, hey, like, we're, we're going to be living, like, you know, two states apart. Or however many states apart Kansas and Texas are. <laughs> wow. We can't be together. But my 18-year-old self was very much like, oh, like, it doesn't matter. Like, we're, it'll be fine. We'll make it work. So I, I I don't really think the movie's taking like a very serious stance of like, anti-queerness. It's just like, it's this 18-year-old girl. I don't know, though. I mean, again, I'm concerned about the, the fact that it could be a misinterpretation because of the subtitles. But considering how specific the language is throughout the entire film about it's stuff that only affects girls. And it's like girls have to give the curse to other girls. Like the whole thing really feels like... Everything in this film is a big metaphor for the love that dare not speak its name. And for the film to then end with a specific line that says, we're not girls, we are now women. And then it's like, no kissing. Well, and I did want to point out, too, the reason that the games always have a female protagonist is because it's, I I don't know if it's a Japanese thing or what it is, but apparently um, women are viewed as to be like more spiritual or more like able to connect with the spiritual world. So it was... The word weak was never used, but, like, that seemed to be the kind of, like, idea behind it. But then you're talking about a woman screenwriter and director for this movie. So then what does that say? There's something to do, too, with the fact that this is an all-girls school, which makes sense if you're thinking about the religious aspect of it. But the fact that, you know, this is a curse that's spread by girls to other girls. There's all this stuff about rumors, This all this stuff about, like, girls getting into trouble. Like, in a way, this is a very tropey film. But I think that it's also tapping into, like, a woman's experience of saying, okay, you know, girls interact differently with each other. And when there's no men around to kind of distract them or dilute the message here's the kinds of things that we can explore. Yeah, especially since there are, like, we've mentioned this before, there are, like, no men in this movie. It definitely passes the Bechdel test, too, because they don't really talk about Mm -hmm. men either. Like, if anything, ever. Uh, The Bechdel test, you know, it's like two women not talking about another man with each other. But I, I would argue that maybe you can even say it's two women not talking about a relationship or, like, a love interest. 
And maybe not even just two women, but just two characters, you know, because it's like, why does romance always have to be on the thing? Why, do, why does a, a significant other always have to be on the brain? But I guess this kind of passes that too, even though Michi is very much into Aya, it's a relationship between them is never like the focus, like explicit focus of like what they're talking about. No, but it it is why they're so connected. I mean, I found it slightly uncomfortable that Michi is like... Oh, that one girl that I do- that I really liked is dead. Oh, hey, other girl. <laughs> Michi gets around. <laughs> like, girl, grieve for your dead girlfriend for like a day. <laughs> well, no. So, 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 let's say this then, though. So, okay, you're a queer teenager, and when you're a teenager, and like back when I was in school, Jenny, you're roughly my age. I think you're like a year or two younger than me, Joe. You're way old, but like. <laughs> <laughs> This is what I deal with all the time. It's a game. It's a game we play. I don't know, but like you know, you don't have a lot of options when you're younger and queer for romantic options. And I'm not saying I'm defending her flippant attitude towards oh, like move on to the next girl. But it makes I understand it from being a teenager and from having very few options as to for romantic interests and whatever. To be fair, she has a lot of options if she is a lesbian in an all-girl school. <laughs> At least until they hit, you know, the legal age. <laughs> I mean, it's not like it's a rug-munching fest there. These girls aren't just, like, like eating each other out all the time. Trace, you had to look carefully. There's a lot of finger-touching, which we've already established from our Daughters of Darkness episode. It's yes. basically lesbian foreplay. Yes, it is. No, you're right. Well, and the ghost itself, it, all it does is like grab the arm and just like kind of caress the arm up and down. In 2014, we're doing that still. Well, I would almost say that has to do with like the repression of sexuality in Japanese films in general, yeah. which usually horror pushes those boundaries extremely, um, especially with a lot of their extremist horror films. And then Shion Sono being like the biggest one who pushes boundaries as far as like sexual stuff goes. But yeah, I would say that's almost like repression in society, maybe even like the female director being a little bit too timid to want to like go farther. Do you think maybe that's a studio thing though? Because you did say it's one of the big four Japanese distributors. So maybe it was yeah. studio pressure to not lean into that as heavily. Also possible. I really, like, I have no idea if we have any listeners from Korea or Japan, like, who maybe saw this movie when it came out and had a glimpse of what the reception was like or how it was covered in the media. But I would love to know if there's any kind of backstory about, like, yeah, this is, you know, a big video game adaptation directed by a woman also, it kind of got, like, watered down in certain progressive or, like, you know, boundary-pushing kind of ways. Like, I don't know. Um, I did want to point out, I, I actually did, I forgot, I did note the line that ends the film. And um, it's, yeah, after the kiss, the exact phrasing, at least in the subtitles, is, Just like that, we were adults. Our time of being young girls was over, but we will never forget this. The time we were under a curse, only girls can be affected. And that's when that's where I got the idea of though, like, is the curse lesbianism? Because they're saying, you know, she's over like we're adults, we're over this. Mm-hmm. Is she then saying, Oh, like my attraction to her is just because of this curse from uh, kissing the photo? I think that's what we were trying to say earlier, is like I think that's what it, it almost says. Yeah. <laughs> Except I don't think I don't think it's Michi being like, I'm no longer a lesbian, but it's like the time that we had together, aka like my opportunity to hook up with Aya is gone. Now I got to go to Tokyo and get, like, that fucking photography degree. But it is, though, because, yeah, like, yeah, she's going to go be a photographer. Aya's going to, I don't know, be, 
Aya in town and just like you know whatever. Hang out by the like what like plant flowers. <laughs> Uh, with the singing flowers and the dead girls. Oh, I did like that though. Yeah. The oh, the mm. the ending with the camera. Except I don't like her pose at the end and how they're all just like squatting. <laughs> Very strange. Yeah, but 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 it was good. And like, cause you knew something was gonna happen with that camera. Um, but I, yeah, I did like that all the the dead girls. Also, again, but then hey, I know logic doesn't really mean anything in these movies but because none of the girls were killed by the curse they were killed by like these extra tertiary characters yeah, it's like curse adjacent yeah like i was on my way to drowning and then i just got hit in the head with a shovel and drowned in the river instead but they weren't gonna go they weren't gonna go drown in the reservoir that's not what the curse would have done for them we don't know what the curse was well that's the thing yeah because mayumi because we never discovered what that actually would have happened. Because yes. everyone gets. Could taken anyone away. have broken the curse, or could it only have been Aya? I need to know. <laughs> I think Maya was waiting for. Yeah, Aya. I think it was only Aya. But that, that, but hey, that, that is the impression that I got. I got the impression that the whole curse was so that someone would go find that corpse, and that it would be found, and then Aya would at some point like see it. So I don't think I don't think the intention of Maya was to ever kill anyone. I. But I guess, yeah, I mean, whoever was afflicted by the curse would have gone into the water. The problem is you have Mayumi drowning these bitches. <laughs> I have this image. I have this image of Mayumi, like, in a little leaf fort outside the reservoir, just, like, watching, <laughs> waiting, waiting for people to come to the reservoir. And she's like, but also it's like. She's like, why do people keep coming here? This is insane. <laughs> she's got, like, her, her Jessica Roth, like, war paint on. Yes. She's, like, ready, staking out, like, god damn, these bitches just keep coming up here like lemmings (laughs) but that's okay but that's the other thing too though just because someone goes to the reservoir they're not gonna find this body yeah i think it has to be aya i don't know or we assume that like the ghost is just waiting there and it's like the first warm body like oh change in temperature i'm coming up to the surface but even but even mayumi's (laughs) point of view is i'm killing these girls that are going to the reservoir because they might find the body and my brother's gonna get convicted it's like a it's been long enough b how do you know they're even going to find this body when they go in this reservoir? Yeah. It's pretty dark in there. <laughs> I do love the fact, though, that she's like, well, shit, we're already fucked because that girl has totally already gone in the water. So let's go into the woods. And then he just, like, starts to drown. And she's like, yeah, all right, I'm done. Let's just, let's end this. <laughs> I'm just going to let my mentally handicapped brother just die now. <laughs> I actually liked the um, the parallel, though, of that scene. Because the, when they die, you see, like, his hand is flailing and hers is, like, a peaceful, like, acquiescence to, like, mm-hmm. their fate. But then later, when Michi rescues Aya, it's a close-up of their hands grasping each other. Yeah, they're companions in death. I thought that was really, really... I mean, I thought the visuals, I thought this movie was very well directed. I thought a lot of the, the creepy stuff was very well shot. And mm-hmm. I thought there were some really great visuals in this movie. Yeah, I agree. She has an eye. Well, and I guess maybe uh, cinematographer Yuta Tsukinaga does too? Uh, yeah, she worked with him a few times. So I, maybe they have, like, this connection. Do we know if Mari is a lesbian or... Straight does not say. It just says that she. Oh. I, I mean, I think one of the other films that she directed. It talks about like how it deals a lot with like psychology, and it's about like breaking taboos and feminism. So I wouldn't be surprised if she's just very progressive. But you never know. 
Mm -hmm. it this definitely makes me want to seek out one of her other films and kind of see is this part of her visual style does she play with these kinds of themes a lot i think she's one to to kind of seek out i mean i do know that ring of curse i think it does take place as an all-girls school as well is that a japanese (laughs) because i feel like i've seen that before wait you've seen a japanese movie (laughs) with girls in little skirts I mean, there are still, like, gendered-specific schools in Japan. I I will commend this movie, too, on having a mostly female cast and having your only male character be mentally handicapped. Like, physically and mentally handicapped. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. You're right. There is uh, Susumo. Who is just there to take pictures. Little budding ghost photographer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Can we briefly touch on why Mary is such a kooky, oddball character in this movie? I didn't know. and No one ever says why. And it even bothered me, too, when she basically, like, confronts the headmistress and says, Oh, yeah, you're that lesbian. And then she's like, yeah, I killed that child. And then she goes, okay, bye. And then she just leaves. She's like, well. And it's never confirmed if she graduated from the school or not. She says yes. She says no. Who knows? She seems like a bit of a, like a weird compulsive liar. Like, I'm just too good for all this shit. Like, she she whirls in, stirs up trouble, and is like, all right, I'll be at the photography studio. Bye. With my son. Yeah. I mean, is there, what do y'all think of that? I mean, even her, her introduction, yeah, is her wearing that Bo Peep outfit with the, um, Ooh, I want to say it's Risa and Itsuki as they're doing, like, manicures with each other. Yeah, on the stairs. And, like, Risa is like, don't trust that bitch. <laughs> and it's like, what? Okay, at, the, at that moment, you're like, what the fuck is this? Like, what is she yeah. doing? Well, that whole scene, you're just like, why is this here? <laughs> but that, to me, is, like, kind of quintessentially Asian cinema. Like, there's, I, like, when you said, oh, this film is, you know, quite long, I was like... Is it, or does it just have a distinctly un-North American sense of pacing? Um, yeah, that, that happens. Uh, I feel like South Korean films usually get more plagued with that, though, than Japanese films. But then again, like, I watched Audition last night, and it has, like, this very slow first, Audition like, is slow. opening. And then at the end, it, like, just hits you with everything. <laughs> I agree with that. Were y'all ever bored in this movie? A little, sometimes. I was mostly just, like trying to keep up like okay do i need to know this character what is happening who's gonna hit next like partially just because i was really getting grudge like vibes from it so i kept Mm -hmm. thinking like okay if this character dies does that mean i don't need to remember them or are we gonna like circle back at some point and be like here's what else happened well that's your timeline thing too and like you know juan does that a lot and plays with like timelines outside of order and this movie does that a little bit but i would it's honestly more so the fact that again you're following these wide variety of characters Mm-hmm. As opposed to just one person. I actually have a question though, Jenny. So, okay, so Kazumi Mary, she's the only one with a distinct, like, obviously American nickname. Is there any significance to that? Is it some, trying to say something? Like, maybe she's like the oddball out? Well, her name, it's a nickname. And on, I mean, I know that you were trying to, like, it is basically the director's name is Mari. Oh. But also, she's a Harajuku girl, which is also very dated for the movie to have, like, 
someone who kind of dresses as an into that culture in this film in a small town. It gave me like weird flash dance vibes. Like she works at the power plant in the day and she's a Hiroshuku girl at (laughs) night who also has a photography studio and a son. Well, and again, she knows about this lesbian thing and she knows about the curse. And then she discovers, she solves the mystery of who the lesbian is. And then she just doesn't care. She doesn't care. Because she's too cool. She's kind of a person to have all the endings interwoven together at the end and also be the voice of exposition when necessary. I was actually surprised that they they give you that reveal of the headmistress because I was fully expecting to just never learn who that girl was. Oh, yeah, I know. I was like, okay, we can have this added to the end. I was actually expecting it to be Mary for a while. Which I think actually would have also made sense, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of the reason that I think it does work better for the headmistress, though, is because that's where the whole Ophelia thing comes from, right? Like... Because yeah, it's that woven motif. Blah, blah, blah. So it's a little bit more heavy handed. But if Mary was, it would have been more interesting because then it explains why the hell she's around. I agree. I, I totally agree with you there. And so, so, okay, so then all this Ophelia symbolism and bullshit, like, and all this, like, all these superfluous flots. Plots. <laughs> I'm sorry, was that a flot? Flot. Um, a plot. Do y'all think the movie takes itself too seriously? Or like, not, maybe not too seriously, but it, it, it indulges too much in like, excess. I don't. I've seen, okay, I so know. I have another podcast that deals only with YA books to film adaptations. So I have seen so many classrooms where whatever they're learning happens to be an integral part of the film. So mm. for them to be like, hey, we're doing this choir for graduation. And you're like, sure. How does that play into it? <laughs> oh, Ophelia? Cool. Got it. Things we learn at school are very metaphorically relevant to our lives. Yeah. Well, and again, you're, they're singing about this drowning woman when all these girls keep drowning. Which, you know, it's because the headmistress is like, God damn, I can't believe I've lived this entire life being like a terrible lesbian partner because I just let my girlfriend die. <laughs> that's that's actually something I had a question of too, though. So when Mary confronts the headmistress, the headmistress, oh, wait, hold on, pause one second, I have a line. So, Headmistress says she wasn't tormented by her dead lover's ghost, but was rather suffering out of guilt. One time, her dead lover appeared and asked her to free her from her curse, so she decided to give her a companion. So, there is a second curse at work here. I think it's the original curse that then gets passed to Maya. Because curses in Japanese culture uh, change over time and morph. Explain. Um, I guess the best example is the movie I mentioned earlier, The Inerasable, um, which is not here in the U.S., but the idea of that film is that, so, a Japanese, like, yurei, or, like, in this case, it's onyo, or onyo, mm. onyo, uh, I cannot remember how to pronounce it, or how to spell it either. Anyway, it's essentially something very bad happening to somebody. And then they can haunt, and, like, and continuously haunt, but then usually those haunts turn into something else that happens bad. So then that haunt kind of morphs over time into something even worse. So that's why we have Juwan. Mm. Uh, I guess Juwan would have been a very good example. Like, yeah. we have, like, multiple ghosts, like, <laughs> yeah, no, on this sure. house that are, like, we have the cat boy. We have this, like, Kayoko who's, like, crazy and, like, morphing her body everywhere. And then there's other ones on top of it because they have been haunting for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. So there's, like, a thousand ghosts. I think that's – it's very abstract. And I think, I guess, maybe for – 
Japanese culture that's easier to absorb because may I, I mean again I don't know but I'm assuming they're raised kind of like with those kind of stories and tales. Whereas I, I remember the first time seeing The Grudge, specifically the American version, I was so as a teenager perplexed by this concept of like oh it's not just a it's a curse but it's like oh it's like this feeling of rage that like morphs from person to person to person and mm. I couldn't wrap my head around it. Well, there is a lot of belief in Japanese folklore that the emotion that you're experiencing right before you die yeah. is kind of like the energy that you put out into the world, so. Yeah. Right, and... Nailed well, it. But then, okay, and again, I love the grudge, but that's the thing. It's like this inherently Japanese tale and narrative that... At least, I mean, at least they said it in Japan, but it doesn't fully translate to America because... Americans don't understand, or they're, they're not versed in that. Ooh. Right. It's like uh, the remake of The Grudge, there's a lot of lost in translation stuff that happens with it, but it's not as good as the remake of The Ring, yeah. where that one was kind of morphed more into American uh, expectations and horror tropes. See, I like The Grudge, though, because they they substitute like dumb American audiences in for like dumb Americans living in Japan. So, like, Sarah Michelle Gellar is your audience surrogate because she's like, what the fuck is happening? I don't understand any of this. And it's like, don't worry, American audiences will explain it. <laughs> well, no, and I get that. But, cause, but then then, okay, then you're going into, okay, when you're remaking a movie that's from a different country, do you, you have to update it for American audiences to where it kind of matches their culture. But then you run the risk of whitewashing or, you know, Americanizing this concept that's inherent to a culture a different culture but no one ever complains about the ring being whitewashed because i think it's because he i think because it's such a strong movie it is well it's very strong but also because i think it is the fact that he doesn't really take japanese culture and try to make it in the film and make it palpable like palatable yeah to an American audience, like The Grudge, where they just, like, shoved a white woman in there and they're like, oh, yeah, so we're going to remake this, put her in Japan and do all this stuff. Or, like, Pieces, um, which is, I guess, a more modern example of, like, a Japanese story that got complained for being whitewashed, but it's a book, so I have less issues with that. So do y'all think a remake of this movie could be translated to America? God damn it. You know that was the game, <laughs> dumb shit. Oh, is it? Was it really? Uh, well, no. Uh, okay. I mean, yeah, you have the Catholic. You could even remake it into like. Mm, I think it would be better more as like a Hispanic American story because of all the Catholic uh, guilt. Oh yeah. War- like warped into it. Bring in that guilt. So well, so yeah. I did want to point out, Joe. You can have your fucking game. I just wanted to point out. Uh, so there was a Hollywood adaptation of this film that was going to be made. Now, maybe y'all read my notes. Naturally. Oh God, really? <laughs> so Hollywood, the, the film adaptation was announced in 2003. So it's clearly going ahead. Well, so th- this is a year after the first game came to the stage. So the first game... So these were the games, though, not Yes, the not the movie. So the the first game was released in Japan in 01, and it came to the States in 02. So they announced the ho- movie version in 03. So it... So that's when, like, the hot craze of J-horror was oh, yes. here, and also on top of it, the hot craze of video game adaptations, so it had two well, in exactly, one. Well, exactly, yeah, because yeah, I, think, I think the Ring <laughs> adaptation was 02, as was the Resident Evil movie was 02. Mm. So 
this movie was going to be based on the first game story, and it was tended to be set in Japan as opposed to, you know, a Western country. The two writers were going to be, and you're not going to know these names, I'm going to tell you who they are, Robert Fivolent and Mark R. Brinker. The only credit of writing they have to their names are the 2008 Diane Lane thriller Untraceable. So these are like random guys that they hired to write this script. And the producer (laughs) was going to... John Rogers, who was the screenwriter for Catwoman, the Halle oh, Berry movie. fuck off. Oh, no. That's why it got and, buried. And the core, the... the oh, 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 oh. God, I love Jesus the core, Christ. but that is like the shittiest yeah. movie. Well, no. So, so then, then get this, though. Steven Spielberg was later announced to have been brought in to polish the script. Well, that's crazy. After a long hiatus... The film was reannounced in 2014. This time, so again, this is 12 years later. Uh, or sorry, uh, 11 years later. I don't remember these announcements. No, I, I don't either. <laughs> uh, this time produced by Samuel Hadida. Now, Hadida would go on to produce Resident Evil The Final Chapter, which is the sixth entry, which came out in 2017, before he died in 2018. So my bet is he was wanting to do a video game movie and, I don't know, he got sick and, like, was dying. And so he was like, well, Fatal Frame's not going to happen, so here's Resident Evil 6. Or it was like, this is an easier property to adapt because it's already a long-running franchise. Yeah. So, again, I- I'm interested to see a version of this movie. Maybe not an adaptation of this particular movie, but maybe more something to the games. Because I would like to see something that uses the game a little bit more closely. But... Again, like, is it going to work in American culture? I mean, I think if you did something like people stumble into a mansion and there's ghosts and they've got to figure out, like, what the fuck is going on and there's some kind of curse, probably. Very good Netflix movie. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) It's executive produced by Steven Spielberg. It's a Netflix original and it stars Noah Centineo. Steven Spielberg's not going near Netflix. I know, that's true. But Noah is. I would watch that movie. But it can't star Noah. It has to be about lesbians. Oh, right. They make it gay. They can make it gay. Oh, I Yeah, gay boys. boys. So it's directed by David Dakota. (laughs) (laughs) Shit. Okay, so, okay, before we go to your game, oh, I guess, well, we're kind of talking about it already, but do y'all want to touch on anything before we just go into Joe's? Yes, one last bite of the ass before we move on to the game. Yeah. Like in house. All right, Joe. So we already kind of know what your game is, but what is your game? Really, dude? (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) No, it's like, what would you do if you had to remake this movie? Either, like, full-on remake it or do, like, an American remake. Jenny, do you want to go first or do you want me to go? I'll have you go first. I actually would do something closer to the games. I mean, so again, without having ever played any of them, uh, reading their plots, you know, the the first and the second game are positioned simultaneously like they're totally different totally different characters totally different plots different curses but like they're set at the same time the third game then brings in a new character the protagonist but then it uses one character from the first game and then one character from the second game and they're all experiencing the same supernatural event due to their grief over losing a loved one from each of their games so you could adapt the third game and then do flashbacks to, like, the first and second game. See, though, then at that point, I'm like, oh, you might be doing too much. So I would honestly say you could do this first game. You could do it. You, can, I mean, you can make a story out of it and then make a franchise out of it. But, um... Which has got to be the purpose. I mean, we're not making single movies anymore. Right. But but, but also, if you just adapt the first game, it, it, you can make it into standalone. Like, you don't need the rest of the story. Because, again, th- this character from the first game even shows up in the fifth game as, like, the aunt or something of one of... of 
one of the characters you encounter. Again, it, it's it, it, she's never like a main player except for the first game. But I like the idea again of using this ritual and using the, this kind of cult atmosphere, which the, the which the this movie that we're talking about lacks. It lacks that cult and ritual aspect. So I think that's what you do. Okay. Because you can do cults in America. I mean, again, like, make Ari Aster direct it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jenny, do you have a rebuttal or something that you would build onto that? Uh, so mine is totally different. I think that the movie has a really good bare bones. I've vaguely mentioned this earlier, where you could take the whole, like, Catholic school, lots of girls uh, in one area, maybe even place it in the 70s or 80s so we don't have cell phones. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's a little bit more spooky in, like, middle America. And have it be either middle America or have it be very, very like Southern Texas Catholic school where it's like a little bit like Latina and like tradition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Clashing. And have lots of like explicit girls coming of age into their sexual prime stuff going on. Mm. I can see that. And honestly, I kind of like the idea of switching the culture to something like Latin America. Well, I think just, that would help to get away from the accusations like, oh, you're just whitewashing this. You're like, no, we're like Americanizing it by addressing like a predominant ethnic minority in our specific area. Well, yeah. And also because homosexuality in Latin America is very much more like, you know, still a bit of a taboo. Yes, exactly. So I think even looking at that within a minority group, again, a minority within a minority could be a really interesting aspect. Now, no studio is ever going to make that, but (laughs) we can always dream. That's where you get like, who would you get? I'm pitching it to Blumhouse. Like, get the rights to this movie. I have an idea. Yeah, (laughs) you could get like like Lucky McGee to do that because he's done like a girls' boarding school. He's done like subtle hints of lesbianism with May. So yeah, Lucky McKee uh, would be great for that. Or you know, like a lady director. Yeah, I was about to say, I was like, maybe actually let a woman direct a horror movie in America. <laughs> you know they don't do that at Blumhouse, though, right? Oh, if you, if you, oh my God. Oh, yeah, that's um, right. They don't know any woman directors. But then again, if you... I'm taking it to Netflix. Well, uh, but again, you may also not even have a queer aspect in the film. So, I mean, but I'd love it if they did. Uh, Joe, did you have an idea for one, or have we kind of covered anything? Um, I mean, I think I like the idea of something being set in a very fixed location, like a small, like, women's or boys kind of dormitory, because I feel like that was a popular type of horror film for a while, and that it's not popular anymore. So, Jenny, I do like your idea of even, like, setting it in the past a little bit and getting that kind of flavor going and saying, like, yeah, this used to be a popular thing could still do it. But. And it's so interesting though, because again, that, that school setting is nothing that's in the games. But again, I, I'm coming from someone who's like, I've never played these fucking games before, but I, I'm coming at it from like a fan, of, like trying to put myself in the, as a fan of the games. Because again, mm. a Resident Evil fan like watches that first Resident Evil movie and they're like, what the fuck, man? Like, yeah. none of this is the same. Yeah, I do want to hear from people like, if you've played the game and then you watch this, are you like, what the shit? Or are you like, oh, this is an interesting direction that you have chosen to take it in? And if you think that it's an interesting direction, but then you hate the Resident Evil movie, the first one, um, why? Because that movie's great. I know who I want to direct my movie. It's Anna Lily Amapur. Ooh, nice pick. Yeah, to make it like very kind of like... Now you're going artsy. Gothic indie. Well, she can't do better than the, a girl who walks home alone at night, and she can't do worse than the Bad Batch. So, I mean, <laughs> like... 
<laughs> Does not don't let her go crazy. Well, and I saw someone refer to this movie as a Japanese version of Picnic at Hanging Rock. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but it's okay. actually I yeah. am so in a weird way. I've heard. Of well, it no, I mean it's it's an Australian novel, but that was made into a movie in the '70s. But then um, Amazon Prime just remade it. They just redid it with um, what's her name? And Natalie Dormer. Yeah. It's yes. okay that I've only seen that version of it. It's okay. It's six long hours. Well, the movie is like the movie or the, the, the Amazon Prime one. Yeah, the miniseries. I heard the movie is very. It good. is. It's also quite long and quite slow, but it's like it's like a gorgeous fever dream. Yeah, we're gonna cover it one day. One day. That was directed by Peter mm-hmm. Weir. Oh. He's a great director. Yes. So, um, yeah, uh, I think we'll just kind of move on to the conclusion then. Uh, Jenny, where should people know you from? What, what, where should people follow you? What uh, What do you want to plug? Jenny, what's your address? <laughs> <laughs> well, where, this is where I live. Um, I So my Twitter is Jenny Lee X33, and Lee is spelled the girl way. <laughs> L-E-I-G-H. Um, <laughs> yeah, people don't know that. Uh, but and then I can be found on No Excuses Podcast. Uh, we have Twitter, Facebook, all that jazz. You can search No Excuses Pod and you'll find it. And then sometimes I'm in the newspaper in Austin. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yes. Check out that byline. Yeah. So yeah, and before we announce what we're covering next week, if you want to reach us on Twitter, you can reach me at Traced Thurman. You can reach me at B stole my remote. That's the letter B. And if you're tweeting about the podcast, please be sure to use the hashtag horrorqueers in your tweets so we can find you. Uh, we are going to start doing uh, listener and mailbox readings on our Patreon page. So I just went through and looked at our Twitter page to look at a bunch of responses from questions we've asked in past episodes. And we'll be uh, doing a good, fun compilation of those in an episode. Uh, you can also reach us at horrorqueers at gmail.com. And if you have two seconds, head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating. If you have 30 seconds, please leave us a rating and a review. It's super easy. You just go to the Apple Podcast app and press one of the stars, preferably the five-star button. Uh, and if you like what you've listened to and want even more content, please visit our aforementioned Patreon page at patreon.com backslash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes each month. The bonus content will consist of full-length episode reviews of new horror films and also minisodes, which I just <laughs> described. Our latest episode is I think on extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile, uh, but it might be on Brightburn. It depends on how the current vote is going on our Patreon page. Yeah, it'll be done by the time you listen to this. <laughs> it'll be done by the time this episode drops. Uh, and coming up in just a few weeks, we'll have an episode on The Perfection, aka one of the best movies of the year, which hits Netflix on May 24th. Joe, mm-hmm. what are we covering next week? Next week, we're going to be taking it to the extreme with some new French extremity. We're going to be looking at some male rape in Calvert. English translation is the ordeal, and uh, listeners, I'm sorry to do this to you again, but I don't think it's streaming anywhere, but the DVD is $13 on Amazon. And you should also be watching French Extremity, so it's a good investment. I'd never heard of this one, so I'm kind of excited to journey into it. Uh, also, never you seen... You should not be. <laughs> this is going to be hard. <laughs> I mean, again, when your selling point is male rape, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. There's a lot of lesbian stuff in French Extremity. I actually wrote my final college essay that on joke- Track down the one one with male gayness rape in it. Uh, guess that's good. <laughs> so yeah, uh, on this note, we can cross out Fatal Frame. Yes, and cross out horror queers.
This episode was brought to you by the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, delivering your weekly horror podcast fix. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit bloodydisgusting.com backslash podcast network.